Please turn with me to Proverbs 24. Proverbs 24, and I want to read verses 10 through 12. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Deliver those who are drawn toward death and hold back those stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, surely we did not know this, does not he who weighs the hearts consider it? He who keeps your soul, does he not know it? And will he not render to each man according to his deeds? Father, we thank you for this, your word. We pray that you would uh, bless it, uh, that you would cause uh, it to triumph in our lives, that you would cause it to prosper and to grow into a harvest. We pray that you would uh, be with us as we continue to worship. Uh, What a delight it is, Father, to have your word, to respond to your word. And we pray that the thoughts and meditations of our heart would be acceptable in your sight. Through Christ Jesus we pray. Amen. may be seated. I'd written a check at a grocery store and the grocery clerk asked for my driver's license just to check my ID. As soon as I handed it to her, she said something to the effect, you're illegal. Your license has expired. And I didn't really believe her. I took it and looked at it. And to my horror, I thought not only had it expired, it had been expired for several months. (laughs) And uh, I couldn't believe that I had let such a simple thing pass. Uh, Scott would tell you that I uh, couldn't plead ignorance if a police officer had uh, pulled me over. Ignorance of the law is no excuse. And I can't say it's a sin. I'm not sure that the government even has a business being involved in licensing, but that's a, a question for another time. Uh, the reason I brought that up is it's, um, it, it's so easy. It illustrates how it's so easy to let things slide, even if you fully intend to be involved in those. And in the area of sin... Sins of omission many times are just as serious as sins of commission. And today we're going to be looking at a sin of omission, failing to do what we ought to be doing in the area of trying to stop abortion in our nation. And it really is a tough issue to maintain. In a couple of weeks we're going to be looking in Acts chapter 16 at the issue of guidance. Uh, We need the guidance of the Lord in how to apply the various commandments of Scripture Because when you think about it, we're finite creatures. There's only so many hours we have in a day. And knowing how we are to uh, respond to all of the opportunities that present themselves every day is a difficult thing to know, you know, how to have that kind of a balance. Uh, Just because some pro-lifer is trying to make you feel guilty uh, that you're not involved in a specific thing that they're wanting you to be involved in does not necessarily mean that you're involved in sin. Just because there is the opportunity to be at the pro-life clinic, I mean uh, the abortion clinic, every single day in the morning doesn't mean that you necessarily should. Okay, So there's a balance that we're talking about here. Um, uh, There are different ways that we are involved, different callings, different stations of life. And we need the Lord's guidance to know how in the world uh, we should be applying that. Ecclesiastes says there is a time and a season for every event under heaven. A time and a season. So it doesn't mean we're involved in every event all the way through every day of our lives. And so it would be very easy to get legalistic on this question. But the reason I decided that I really needed to preach on this subject, even though our congregation is solidly pro-life, is that a friend of mine uh, from... It really really surprised me. A friend of mine last week told me he's not going to be involved at all in the pro-life movement uh, in this uh, coming year. Uh, even though he is opposed to abortion, he thinks it's a, 
uh, a big uh, problem area, but he does not think it is a priority and should be a priority in any of our lives, except maybe stopping Christians from having abortions. And he had several reasons for his stance. His first reason was until we convert people, train people, and uh, change the laws, you know, in politics, he says it's really useless to be involved in some of these things. It's a losing battle and it's wasted effort. So he said, I'm opposed to abortion. Uh, Don't get me wrong. But why are we going to put that in the whole scope of what America needs? He says this is a lower priority. Now, I disagree with him. His second reason was that he thought that there was no precedent for any interventions at the Moloch temples in the Old Testament where they offered up children. Um, He said there's no evidence that they had picketing. Yeah, when a governor came into power who was opposed to abortion, they'd close those things down. But in terms of the citizens being involved, he says there's no precedent for that. And I disagree with that as well. His third reason was that he thought such children of pagans were better off dying young than growing up to become hardened against Christ and even greater in greater judgment in, in hell. Why would we want them to be judged more? He said that by rescuing them, we're making their judgment severe. Now, whatever you think about his reasons, and I disagree with his reasons too, his conclusion was clearly wrong. Uh, he was wrong because the blood of pagans does indeed defile the land and call down God's judgment upon a country. He was wrong because we ought to be concerned about God's judgment and seeking to stay God's judgment on our land through our prayers, not just passively waiting for such judgments to come. He was wrong because the sixth commandment applies to Christian and pagan alike. He was wrong because Romans 13 says that even a pagan magistrate is is a representative of God, a minister of God, who is responsible to punish murder with the sword wherever that murder is found. He was wrong because there is such a thing as a sin of omission. And we're just going to look at that last tiny little slice, the sin of omission, when it comes to this uh, area of abortion. The passage we just read indicates that there is a law against non-involvement. There is a God against non-involvement. And there is a providence that comes against non-involvement as well. Uh, Certainly, there are different callings and different ways in which we're expected to be involved in the pro-life cause, but I want to build a case for saying every single one of us, men, women, and children, ought to be doing something to stem the tide of God's judgments which have already come against our nation. Even the person who was an invalid in the bed could do something. And so point number one, love needs to be reminded there is a law against non-involvement. Verse 11, deliver those who are drawn toward death and hold back those stumbling to the slaughter. He's saying it's not enough to abstain from murder. It's not enough to abstain from abortion. You also need to be involved in delivering those who are headed toward that kind of a fate. We must be... It's not just enough to say, hey, I'm not involved in any of those kinds of sins. He says you also need to be stopping, seeking to stop those who are involved in what should be a crime uh, in our land. Now, you may have not realized that before. You knew there was a law against abortion and pornography and murder and theft and all of those other things. But stopping those or or protecting those who are victimized by that kind of a crime, that may seem a, a little bit further. But let me read from the larger catechism. And we're going to start to build a case for this. When commenting on how to read the Ten Commandments, Larger Catechism says this, 
Where a duty is commanded, the contrary sin is forbidden, and where a sin is forbidden, the contrary duty is commanded. In other words, when God gives the command, thou shalt not murder, he also implies in that command, thou shalt preserve life. Otherwise, the Ten Commandments could not summarize all of the moral laws of God. And so this is really a logical deduction that they get from the Scriptures, and they give proof text to, uh, to demonstrate this. And I want to just illustrate it for you. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus was talking to the people who were quite aware of what the Pharisees were involved in. And I am convinced that the Pharisees probably would not have been the people out there mugging the Good Samaritan and robbing the stuff off of him. You know, they would have avoided that. In fact, that's probably why they were walking on the other side of the road. Uh, They tried to stay as far away from sinners as they could. So theirs was an ethic of avoidance. And that ethic of avoidance uh, led them to be uninvolved in the area of giving life to other people. Uh, We have a society that has become so uninvolved that you read reports of people looking out of their windows. Others could see that. They were looking out of their windows witnessing a mugging or a raping out there on a street or some other kind of a violent crime, and they did not so much as lift their finger to call the police on the telephone. They didn't come forward as witnesses. When people noticed that person's light was on, they were looking out and they went up to get a witness. They didn't want to be involved. They didn't want to get in trouble with whoever is out there uh, doing these muggings. And I've wondered many times to what degree this passivity in our society has been generated by people watching television. Um, And just think of this. This is my theory. It may not be correct. But when you're watching a crime being perpetrated on the television, it arouses emotions within you that were designed by God to lead you to action. They're the fight or flight kind of emotions. But when you're watching it on a movie, you can't do anything about it. You're just sitting there as a blob on your on your um, sofa. And so what you're doing is you're preparing your body through emotions to action, but you're refusing to get involved in action. And so your body over time begins to be conditioned to respond in ways other than God intended. So we become passive, very, very passive, even when we see crimes happening. So, it transfers from there out into the real world. Now, I can't prove that that is true, but that's one of my theories of why we've become such a passive society out there. But in any case, um, there may be other reasons. Uh, I think that when we are passive in the face of crime, we need to realize it's not just a policeman's responsibility when uh, there is somebody who is robbing a house. When we see somebody, a burglar, going into a house, we need to do something about it. You know, call the neighbor and say, hey, did, did you realize there's somebody going into your house or uh, calling the police or doing something to be involved? When you see a car accident, don't just go whizzing on by and say, oh, somebody else will stop. You need to stop. You saw who was in the right and who was in the wrong and just volunteer. If you need a witness, here's my phone number and uh, you can call me uh, up uh, if uh, you need a witness for this. Now, obviously, there are ifs, ands, and buts. Uh, that modify what I'm talking about here. For example, if you're a single woman and it's nighttime and you see a guy that's uh, got his hood up on the side of the road, you might say, well, I'll I'll call and see if he needs help, but I'm not going to stop, you know, because you could get mugged yourself. So there are ifs, ands, and buts. But we all can do something to be more involved than our society tends to be. Now, this verse indicates 
We need to be involved even when there are corrupt courts that sanction violence or when a police department becomes abusive or when prison guards uh, rape and maim. We need to be involved. What should our position be? Some people have taken the attitude that we cannot be involved if the sin that is being engaged in is legal. And with abortion, they say, oh, I, I can't be involved in that. You know, that would be against the law. The law says that abortion is legal. I just have to back out. Well, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer scolded the churches of Germany for using the law as an excuse for non-involvement during the things that happened under that regime. He said it may be legal, but it is unlawful in God's books, and we must stand against it. There are two different phrases in verse 11. First one deals with rescuing a person from the court, which implies the government can be wrong. Uh, deliver those who are drawn toward death. The second phrase deals with rescuing a person who is being murdered in some other kind of a situation. So it's hold back those stumbling to the slaughter. Now, the Hebrew of the first phrase indicates this is a very deliberative process of um, a, a court handing a person over to an executioner the second phrase indicates it's accidental. You're walking along and you stumble into a bunch of hoodlums and you get, you know, taken uh, by those people. So there are different situations that are being addressed. Now let's start with the first phrase. Deliver those who are drawn towards death. The drawn toward death phrase, as I've mentioned, is a legal phrase for a court that's determined this person is worthy of the death penalty they have turned them over to the executive department for execution. Exactly the same Hebrew words are used in Deuteronomy 19, verse 12. Uh, and this is a good context. It says, And the elders of the city shall send and bring him from there and deliver him over to the hand of the avenger of blood that he may die. Now that phrase, deliver him over to die. Exactly the same Hebrew as in Proverbs uh, 24 here where it says, him who is drawn toward death. So here, here's what's going on. Civil magistrate, well, in the case of the court, has determined this person deserves to die, has handed them over to the executive. And in Proverbs 24, God is saying, you need to be involved even when the injustice is being perpetrated by a court. You need to be involved in stopping this injustice or trying to, even when... It is a court that is being involved. There is a law against ignoring what the courts have been doing to millions of unborn children in America. The number of abortions has gone down considerably. Uh, just looked at the statistics that Mike uh, forwarded to me. It's been lowered by 25% uh, from 1990 to 2005. But think of this. In 2005, there were still 1.2 million abortions. That is one in five pregnancies deliberately being terminated. That is 20% of all children being slaughtered by the sword and people are not doing a whole lot about it. It's an incredible thing when you think about 20% every year of all children being slaughtered uh, before they can breathe a breath of air. Now, there are other forms of slaughter that have been going on in the world. There is a law against ignoring the afflicted behind the bamboo curtain. You know, when we turn a blind eye to the beatings and the maimings and the torture, the killings of Christians in Muslim countries, uh, God is not pleased with that. And there are many Muslim countries where this has been happening. 
Nigeria, Sudan, Turkey, Malaysia, Egypt, Libya, Lebanon, Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, Iran. And there are other countries where there is a person who's murdering this person over here and the government doesn't do anything about it. They just turn a blind eye to it. And sometimes the governments themselves are involved in this persecution. Now, you look at things like that and you just might throw up your hands and say, what, what can we do? We feel so helpless. How in the world can we make a difference? Well, I would say it is our duty to try, not our duty to succeed. God's duty uh, is God's responsibility, I should say, as to whether you succeed or you don't succeed. You leave that in His hands, but we must be involved in some way. When it comes to mothers who have had abortions or were contemplating abortions, we can make a difference. For example, there have been numerous mothers who have been so, so thankful to the picketers at the abortion clinic. They said, if you had not been there, I would have gone through with this abortion. And they've come back and they've thanked them so much that their baby had been spared. There are mothers at PATH programs who have gone through abortion and are trying to work through the trauma in their own lives. And they said, if only somebody had told me uh, what was going on in this abortion. But I think that we can make a difference. We can make a difference. Uh, we've gotten reports that our letters to Egypt have resulted in charges being dropped and people being released uh, from prison. Your involvement through lobbying and for voting can help the unborn. And so we just cannot say it's legal. There's nothing that we can do about it. It's not my responsibility. God says... There is a law against uninvolvement even if the courts are doing the injustice. <clears throat> so one of the things we can do is we do some research on which judges we ought to retain, which judges we ought to vote out of office. Christians really don't do a whole lot of work in that area. Uh, another example where this language is used is in Numbers 35 and verse 25. Now, in the context, the person has been falsely accused of first-degree murder. He flees to the city of refuge. He gets a fair hearing. And in verse 25, it gives the result. It says, So the congregation shall deliver the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood, and the congregation shall return him to the city of refuge where he had fled. The word deliver is used of the congregation. This means the citizens have delivered this victim from the hand of a magistrate. The citizens have done that. By the way, this verse is uh, the basis for the American jury system. If you wonder where the jury system uh, came from, you look at some of the older discussions. This is exactly where it uh, came from. And America has a fine tradition of juries making a decision not based on the judge's instructions, but based on the Constitution, disagreeing with the judge. Uh, you're not going to have judges tell you uh, this. In fact, you're probably nowadays going to have a judge who will tell you you're going to get in trouble if you try to judge the law. You just say whether you think he has done this and I'll be the determiner of what he should get. But there have been many judges down through America's history that have said, no, juries have a responsibility to judge both the, law, uh, the facts as well as the laws, whether these laws are really constitutional. They are a check and balance that was deliberately put in place to stop potential tyranny within the government. Who were they afraid of when they put all the checks and balances into the Constitution? They were afraid of the government, right? The civil government. And so this is one of those checks and balances that could be in place. And God may very... Um, uh, at some point, very likely, put you at some time on a jury that's deciding a case for some other 
pro-lifer or some other uh, situation. And you need to be understanding, what are my rights as a juror? How do I need to, 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 to uh, judge in terms of the Constitution? And if you need help with that, I've got an essay that was written by a legal scholar some time back that is fantastic. Or you can always um, pull out of uh, your pocket the Citizen's Rule Book, you know, and the jury handbook that's in there. But educate yourself. Know what uh, you can and what you cannot do uh, on a jury. And I'm just trying to give you some creative different ways in which this involvement can take place. doesn't all have to be at the abortion clinic, though I think there needs to be a lot more taking place there. Now, let me give you another example. Abigail was a wise woman who prevented David from engaging in murder in 1 Samuel chapter 25. Now, this is just a marvelous story of how a woman who was really the very vulnerable through her wisdom uh, was single-handedly able to avert a person being brought to death. Now, in one sense, that Nabal deserved it. But in another sense, David, if David admitted he would have been involved in murder if he had done it. He was just letting his anger get away from him. And he praised uh, Abigail. Here's what he said. Blessed is the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. And blessed is your advice and blessed are you because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed and from avenging myself with my own hand. For indeed, as the Lord God of Israel lives who has kept me back from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, surely by morning light no males would have been left to Nabal. So David received from her hand what she had brought him and said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have heeded your voice and respected your person. She was uh, trying to creatively think outside the box. How can I prevent this murder from happening? And there are other creative things that you can do. One of the things you can do is give money to legal organizations that are involved in exactly this process. Uh, uh, for example, the Rutherford Institute. The Foundation for Moral Law, that's an organization um, that Judge Roy Moore is involved with. The National Legal Foundation, Alliance Defense Fund, the Leadership Institute, the God and Caesar Fund Foundation. And there's a lot of other Christian legal societies that are starting, instead of just being always on the defensive, they're starting to go on the offensive. For example, some have uh, successfully... Uh, brought lawsuits against police departments that have deliberately been trying to hurt um, uh, pro-life protesters. Uh, I saw some of the video footage of uh, one of these things, and it, was, it just made your stomach sick to see what these police officers were doing. This is in America, you know, land of the free. Yeah, right. Uh, they were deliberately, uh, one after another, deliberately breaking the arms of these uh, pro-life protesters uh, hitting them on the head, breaking bones in their head, uh, blood coming out of their face. These are peaceful protesters who were not doing a thing in the United States of America. So what these organizations were doing, some even died. Some even died uh, as a result of this treatment. These organizations are seeking to deliver those who are being drawn to death by abusive police departments. And if you give money to such organizations, what the Scripture says is you are sharing in their ministry. You're involved, very much involved in what they are doing. Now, let's take uh, other forms of murder, such as occur under rape and burglary and violent assault. How can we stop people from being slaughtered by criminals? Well, one way you can do it is by teaching your whole family in self-defense. 
We got people here. Jack could help you do some of that. And there's others around that can help you in self-defense. Uh, see, the Scripture indicates that the right to self-defense is an inalienable right. Of course, the Second Amendment to our Constitution says the same thing. And Jesus said that owning the weapons that would enable you to self-defense is an inalienable right as well. Luke chapter 22 is one passage where Jesus was giving His disciples a mandate that they be responsible. Don't just be presumptuous. Be responsible. He said to them in Luke 22, when I sent you out before without any money, without knapsack, without extra sandals, did you lack anything? He said, nothing, Lord. He said, okay. That was a test just to show you that you can depend upon God when you don't have anything. You can depend upon God and He will provide for you. But he said, that's not the normal way you ought to be functioning. And now that I am leaving you, here is the normal way in which you need to be responsible. Here's his words. He who has a money bag, let him take it. So don't be presumptuous. Don't just say, oh, well, I'll just trust the Lord to provide. Yeah, He's already provided. Take your money with you. Likewise, a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. We must be responsible. And he's saying you're not being responsible if you've got this huge wardrobe of clothing and you don't have any weapons to defend yourself with. So, what's he, what's he, what's he teaching here? His disciples are taking him seriously and they're, they're, they're not spiritualizing this. They say, Lord, look, here are two swords. I don't think you can get around that, spiritualizing. These were actual weapons. Why did they only have two? Well, I'll be explaining in a moment. It was really hard to get weapons back in those days. Really tough. You had to know people. Okay? Uh, <laughs> and here's what Jesus responds. He said, it is enough. Basically, he was saying, yeah, that'll work. That's great. Now, what do we learn from this passage? Well, first, we learn that Jesus was rescuing His disciples from a false submission to tyranny. Okay? Rome had outlawed the carrying of weapons by anybody except for soldiers. In fact, soldiers were not even allowed to carry weapons except for when they were on duty. You couldn't own armor. They had to turn their armor and all of their swords in. The only thing you could carry was a knife of a certain dimension. It's very similar to some of the rules you see in cities today. There's been 4,000 years of history on, uh, on weapon control, and Rome had very strict ideas on we weapon control. In fact, I, uh, there was a BBC program that was outlining uh, and, and quoting from some of their documents and showing uh, the, the strict weapon control. And people were thinking, oh, this is great. This is what we need to do. You know, keep people from having any of these weapons. Jesus did not agree. He did not agree. What He did was He was allowing His disciples to own two illegal weapons. That's exactly what Jesus was doing. Two illegal weapons. Okay, and so this is exactly in the same category as rescuing a victim from an unscrupulous judge. This is rescuing potential victims from unscrupulous loss. Now, he was careful to correct abuse. Peter was not allowed to use that weapon against the civil magistrate. As soon as he tried to do it, Jesus told him, put up your sword. He who lives by the sword will die by the sword. He, there, there are contexts in which you may and contexts in which you may not use it. But owning such weapons is being very pro-life. It is being very. What you're doing is you're protecting the lives of your family and of your loved ones from attacks from thugs and criminals and potential anarchy. And so take seriously 
Christ's command to sell some of your clothing so that you can get a reliable weapon. But along with that, study the life of David in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel and you will have a boatload of information as to where it's appropriate and where it is inappropriate to use that weapon. He would not use his weapon against Saul except in two contexts. When he was deputized by the city of, I think it was the city of Cala, and when he was a civil magistrate of the city of Ziglag. In both of those situations, he was willing to fight against Saul. But when he was not in that situation, he still was armed. He still was fighting against people from outside, but he was not willing to fight against Saul. So there are contexts in which you can and which you cannot use it, but that is being very uh, pro-life. The point is, if, if we have... Um, well, well, we'll deal with that point a little bit later. A multitude of ways we can be involved in the political and the legal system. Uh, Andrews can give you some suggestions. I'm sure Rodney and I and almost every man in this congregation give you some, uh, uh, some suggestions. But when it comes to all of the issues of making our society, that are making our society a pro-death society, don't say it's none of our business. There's nothing I can do. If everybody had that attitude, there would be nobody to make it their business when you were being drawn toward death. And so we need to all be taking this seriously. Proverbs 14, verse 25, uses the same Hebrew word when it says a true witness delivers souls. Now, you may not have the money or the resources or the strength to be able to be involved in some of the ways that I've outlined, but you could go forward and testify as a witness when you saw a violent crime uh, that was happening. Uh, some will be involved as lawyers, others as judges, others as police officers, others as informed citizens with money. Others as informed citizens who don't have a lot of money, but they have paper and pen, and they're using that paper and pen very effectively. Others as informed citizens who are storming the gates of heaven and are praying that God will stop abortion and stop the violence that is happening in our land. But every one of us, in one way or another, needs to be involved uh, in trying to put an end to the violence in our land. We cannot ignore the curse that hangs over America. Now, a number of you are... Uh, on a weekly basis, or sometimes not quite weekly, but on Saturdays at the abortion clinic. I'm very, very pleased, especially the young people, but there are some adults that have been going down there as well. And it may be that God is calling and will stir up some of the hearts of, uh, of others uh, to go down there and to pray imprecations against uh, these, uh, these murderers there and uh, to seek to rescue uh, the, the children as well. Let me amplify just a little bit further on the meaning of this phrase. If it is our responsibility to intervene when a court is against the victim and is against justice, how much more so when the courts are for you? Okay, when they are for justice. Don't expect the police to do all of the work of stopping violence. Uh, I think that Americans depend too much on the police. We've gone soft. Uh, in the book of Deuteronomy, God says He expects every citizen to be involved in the governing process and that a government is only going to be as good as its citizens. You see, Deuteronomy does not want a police state. In fact, the Bible hates a police state. Uh, what the Bible calls us to do is to have a state that has certain magistrates, yes, but doesn't have police. Why? Because the citizens are self-governing, very self-motivated. Now, let me mention that there does need to be balance on all of these duties. Involvement in preventing murder is not the only duty God has commanded us. And so if we pursue the pro-life cause so much that we neglect our families, our devotions, our health, our involvement in the church, 
our other responsibilities. The Lord's not going to be pleased with that. We've got to have balance. So don't think that this is a call this morning that you've got to spend an hour every day in the pro-life cause. Some people will be called to more than that. But each person needs to evaluate his schedule and the order of priorities as God and family and church and society. We need to be involved in all. Uh, the point is, if we have never, ever done anything for the pro-life cause, we are clearly in violation of Proverbs 24, verses 11 and 12. That's the point. Verse 12 says, God will hold each person accountable for their pro-life stand. He, he, he says, will He not render to each man according to his deeds? There is a law against non-involvement. Now, it's just not a law that you can file in the filing cabinet up here and just forget about it uh, because there is a God who is against non-involvement. He's not going to be filed away. Uh, he is right there with you every day. Look at verse 12. If you say, surely we did not know this, does not he who weighs the hearts consider it? He who keeps your soul, does he not know it? Now, there are a multitude of people and, uh, uh, and who will come up with all kinds of reasons for their non-involvement. And it may be that somebody doesn't know that abortion exists in our land. I just can't conceive of that being possible. But maybe somebody is ignorant. And maybe there are some people out there who don't have the time and don't have the strength and don't have the freedom to be able to, to do something. And God knows whether your excuses are legitimate or whether they are not legitimate. But this can be an encouragement or it can be a challenge. It can be an encouragement if you are involved, but you're not involved to the degree that some other pro-lifer thinks you should be. Your conscience is only bound by God. Okay, You stand before God, not before Phil Kaiser to answer for your questions. And so this could be just a liberating concept. I know before God that I'm doing the kind of things that I need to be doing. I'm not going to succumb to all of this pressure to be more and more involved in things that I simply don't have the time for. So it could be that this principle that you're standing before God is a liberating concept. But uh, to the rest of you, I want to remind you that the God who holds your soul is asking you this. What have you personally, not what is your family, what have you personally done to stop abortion? I mean, it's a whole holocaust. 20% of children being destroyed by the sword every year? That is a holocaust. What have you personally done? You, you simply cannot ignore this. What did you personally do when you received a letter from the weeping and the pleading cries of people in Nepal and Saudi Arabia and Malaysia? Did you just pitch the, the thing into the, into the garbage and not do anything about it? I mean, you could at least say a 30-second prayer. Lord, please protect these people. Encamp round about them. Give them justice. Please take them out of jail. Provide the food that they need. You know, just a short prayer and then ditch it into the paper. Because I understand we're overwhelmed with, over, what's it called, information overload? And we're overwhelmed with all of the stuff that comes our way. So I can understand that, but try to do what you can. And if your excuse is simple, I don't have time to, to write a letter. You know, maybe there's a big issue that's before us. I don't have time to write a letter, but you spend hours and hours every week watching the TV. The Lord who knows your hearts and who knows your schedule is going to turn His face against you. <clears throat> day by day, we need to be a people who are in fellowship with God. And non-involvement brings us out of fellowship with God because He hates non-involvement. 
When you say, I can't get up early enough, you know, to go uh, picket at the murder of babies, well, maybe that's true. Don't go once uh, a week. Maybe go once a month or four times a year or something like that. But the Lord knows that you're quite able to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning when you're going on a skiing trip or you're going on a business trip or you're going somewhere else and, oh, I just can't get up at 5.30 in the morning, you know, to go uh, picketing. The Lord knows whether your excuses are really reasonable excuses and what is good for pleasure ought to be good for uh, duty as well. Now, He's not saying that you can't go camping. He's not saying you, you can't watch TV. What He's saying is don't use lame excuses with me. I am with you. I know exactly what you are going through. The God who blesses and curses, the God who wrote Deuteronomy 28 is the same God today, the God who was with you moment by moment, and the God to whom the blood of the land is crying out for vengeance is a God that we have to deal with. We have to deal with, and He hates non-involvement. And I think there's a lot more that some of us could do to stay His hand of judgment than many in our churches have done. Finally, verse 12 indicates that there was a providence against non-involvement. In other words, God doesn't just hate our non-involvement. He's going to do something about it. He's going to do something about it. Verse 12 goes on to say, And will He not render to each man according to his deeds? You know, He's already done something about it. I'm not saying He's going to. He already has. The mess that America is in is largely because of the church's non-involvement. It has been a pietistic church that has escaped from culture, escaped from its duties, escaped from dominion. And what happens when we abandon culture? Humanism comes right back in. You know, nature hates a vacuum. There's always going to be something that is going to fill it. And what I'm telling you this morning is that that is a judgment from God's hand. It is God's will for the humanists to dominate in America because the church deserves it. We deserve that judgment. Matthew 5 says exactly the same thing. It says that when we stop being salt and light in society, when the salt has lost its saltiness, we are good for nothing. We can't even be thrown onto the dung heap because a dung heap at least is useful for fertilizer. He says we're not even fit for that. We are fit to be cast out and trampled under foot of men. Now, to be under the foot of men means you're under their dominion. So he is saying that the church is going to be, and it's God's will that they be, under the influence and the rule of humanists, and we're just going to have to tough it out. That's exactly what he is saying. We deserve the condition that we are in. It's his providence that is against us. Now, I want you to turn with me to Ezekiel 20. This is a, a rather interesting uh, passage. It indicates the American church has only itself to blame uh, for the mess in America. God promises when we fail to follow God's laws as a church that um, we are going to become the tail instead of the head. When we fail to promote God's laws in society, we are going to become subject to laws we cannot stand and that we cannot live by and which are not uh, in our best uh, interest. And it grieves me that Reformed people are just as much on the forefront of abandoning God's laws as uh, the rest of the church is. Uh, they, people don't like uh, the, the, the case laws of Deuteronomy. Anyway, look at Ezekiel 20, 24 through 25. And you might want to underline these, with these words. He says, Because they had not executed my judgments, those would be the case laws of Deuteronomy, but it despised my statutes. Now, statutes were laws 
that God gave to govern civil governments. Those were statutes. And it's interesting to note, it's not just modern Christians who didn't like and who despised the Old Testament laws. The Old Testament people did too. Okay, so don't think this is an Old Testament, New Testament thing. Human nature doesn't like God's laws. But anyway, they despised God's statutes, profaned my Sabbaths, and their eyes were fixed on their father's idols. Therefore, I also gave them up to statutes that were not good and judgments by which they could not live. Notice he says, I gave them up to those terrible laws. Okay, tyrannical laws are a part of God's providence. The wicked statutes that are cropping up all around our nation is God's providence against us. Uh, years ago, you probably read that court case of a pedophile. Oh, it was a, it was a disgusting, an absolutely disgusting uh, person. But the pedophile was tried, was convicted, but it was overturned by the U.S. Supreme Court and the reason for the overturning was because some scripture was read during the, um, the um, you know, the sentencing that was given. You know, saying even the scripture says this is a horrible thing. They overturned it on that basis. And what has been happening is there has been an accelerating of this kind of anti-Christian behavior in the courts ever since that time. Uh, to the point where America has not just become a post-Christian nation, it has become an anti-Christian nation. It, it's horrible the, 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 the situation that we find ourselves in. And um, there are faithful men in government who are trying to do something about it, but they're lonely because there are no Christians who are out there supporting them. You know what the Christians are doing? They say, well, I'm so glad you're doing what you're doing, you know, but uh, I agree with you, but you're not electable. And so I'm going to vote for this person I can hardly stand the stench of, but he's better than Hillary. We deserve exactly what we are getting in this nation. With that kind of an attitude, we deserve exactly what we are getting. We've got to think biblically. We've got to think in terms of God's overarching providences uh, in history rather than thinking like the world thinks. And so, Ezekiel 20 says that when we reject the cultural and the civil laws of the Old Testament, God will make sure that we taste the bitter fruit of humanistic culture, of humanistic statutes, and say, see how you like it. If you don't like my laws, here's what's going to happen. You're going to suffer under the laws of the humanists. There is a providence that is against us. So don't be part of the problem in these upcoming elections. Think biblically. Back to Proverbs 24. I want you to notice it's not just... The culture as a whole that God's providence is against. It's not just the church as a whole that God's providence is against. This passage is indicating every single individual is going to have God's providence coming against them if they have this sin of omission. Last phrase of Proverbs 24, verse 12. And will He not render to each man according to his deeds? There is a providence against our lives individually when we neglect His duties. And you may have been discovering some of His bad providences uh, in your life. The Lord knows how to mess up our finances, uh, how to mess up our health and our training of other people. He knows how to discipline us. According to Deuteronomy, He knows how to bring mildew into your home that you can't get rid of and how to keep your bread from rising and all kinds of things. Read through Deuteronomy 28 and he says he's so creative in bringing his providences to bear against your life. And I think we need to get used to thinking of the good things that happen to us and the bad things that happen to us in light of Deuteronomy 28. This is his covenant. 
I should hasten to say not everything bad that happens to you is a discipline. Okay, there's about 22 reasons God brings difficulties into our lives, uh, even when we're perfectly uh, in, in fellowship with Him. But what Proverbs 24 is saying is that you are going to experience the negative results in your life when you have this sin of omission. So the question is, am I involved myself? Am I part of the process? Each man will be held accountable by the Lord, and God is faithful in rendering to believers an afflicting providence when we ignore His Word. It's for our good. It's an aspect of His grace to drive us to the Lord Jesus Christ. The New Testament words this in terms of the laws of harvest, that we reap what we sow. Now, we've seen we all need to be involved in social issues, preserving the lives of people. Let me repeat some of the ways that we can do that. If you could just add to your notes what you've missed. We can be engaged in writing, praying, protesting, appealing, supporting ministries that can protect and stand up for rights, spreading the news about such organizations, uh, lending books and videos, telling neighbors about abortion, voting appropriately, instructing magistrates that you have access to, giving out literature, picketing, training in self-defense, informing others about their jury duties. There's many, many other ways. God doesn't expect you to be involved in everything. He has different callings, different seasons of life, but still, we ought to be involved. Now, the immediate responses that we might uh, give or hear other people give can be summed up in these verses as well. In verse 10 it says, If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Why do we quit? Because we're opposed. Oh, we've had a day of adversity, and I just want to give up and quit. Everybody's against me. And when you have days of adversity week after week after week, it does get discouraging. This is what's been going on down at the abortion clinic. You know, people years ago, there were a lot, large crowds there, and nothing was changing, and they start dwindling down until you get only two or three people who are faithful down through the years. But he is saying that when you allow adversity to make you give up, your strength is very small. People think we need to be involved in much more productive affairs than going down to the clinic and praying down there. But, you know, there has been some effect. Uh, 25% drop in abortions, that's nothing to sneeze at. Now, we don't know for sure what percentage of all of that was uh, really from the the involvement of pro-lifers. But, you know, Vital Signs and other ministries have been involved in shutting down two clinics. They have been involved in rescuing quite a number of children from birth and people coming to Christ. There have been uh, there has been at least one guard who was converted recently, right, from that and just decided... Actually, two. How many was it, uh, Ben? Two, three guards that finally uh, turned away from, from there? You know, Jonathan? Anyway, it was a pretty cool story. Andrew wrote it in the report, and here, how soon I forget. Um, but uh, neat story there. Uh, but uh, stopped a hospital from performing abortions. And so there has been some effect. But we do tend to get discouraged when we don't see immediate results. But God still calls us to seek, to try to deliver those who are being drawn to death. And how could there be any more direct way of doing that than to stand at the very place of execution? I think we need to... We need to, you know, applaud and, and, and praise and encourage those who are doing that week after week. It is a discouraging business. And uh, try to stand behind them, at least, by way of encouragement. 
perhaps the Lord's calling you to that. Here's what one commentary said on this verse. Exceptional strain is a fair test of a man's mettle. Exceptional strain is a metal, M-E-T-T-L-E. It's not M-E-T-A-L, not the thing that goes buzz when you go through the airport uh, metal detectors. This is the metal that means uh, you got backbone, you got courage, you got stamina. He says, exceptional strain. Now, there are difficulties that are coming against you. That's the test of a man's metal. So don't be discouraged. Don't give up. When you've got things that are going against you, you're uncomfortable, you, you, you're just not having fun in the relationships and, and things like that. Don't give up. So hopeless conditions are no excuse, verse 10. Avoidable responsibility is no excuse, verse 11. And ignorance is no excuse, verse 12. If you say, surely we did not know this, realize that God examines the heart. It's ultimately before the Lord that you stand. And if there is something very specific that the Lord has been convicting you of as I've been preaching, make sure you write that down. Maybe there's two or three areas you say, yeah, that is something that I could be involved in. And the Lord's been bringing conviction. Don't just... Don't just put them off. Write it down. Don't leave this place without having some kind of a plan in which you can be used by God to help uh, deliver those who are being drawn to death. Perhaps it will be to instruct your children the rights of jurors to judge the law. Uh, perhaps it will be to talk to your elected officials. Perhaps it will be to run for political office. But how can I stand up for life when life is being trashed? You need to ask yourself that question. May God make us uh, be uh, having less and less times when we're unintentionally involved in this sin of omission. And may we be more and more deliberate in crying out to the Lord on behalf of those and acting on behalf of those who are being drawn to death. Let's pray. Father God, thank You for this challenge. Uh, thank You for Your law. Uh, we recognize that uh, when we are brought under conviction by Your law, uh, the only hope that we can have is to go to the cross of Jesus Christ, to go to His grace. And I pray that each one here uh, would indeed find the strength, the forgiveness, the encouragement, the empowering that flows from the cross of Jesus Christ. May we not live in our guilt, uh, but may we wash it away through the blood of Christ and find ourselves ready for a new day to tangle uh, with Satan and to tangle with all the enemies of that cross. I pray that You would use this congregation to be a mighty testimony and a mighty force in this city for overturning uh, the violence that is in the land. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.